Well, last week, uh, as we looked at Genesis 35, we were looking back on the life of Jacob and saw how Moses summed up certain experiences of Jacob uh, that we can very easily identify with that are part of our lives as the people of God as well. And we saw that this journey of life involves inescapable sorrows and distresses. Um, to sum up, the last week's big idea was this. Although times of pain and sorrow are guaranteed in this life, God is faithful in answering our distresses by reminding us of who he is and what we have in him. So how do we know that pains, times of pain and sorrow are guaranteed in this life? Well, Jesus guaranteed it in John 16, 33. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. We know 1 Peter 2.21 also says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we suffer, uh, some of the ESV uses the word endure, but it's in the context of enduring through suffering, we shall also reign with him. But even though we know the Bible is God's word and is true, we don't really... The fact of the matter is, we know that uh, pain and suffering is guaranteed in this life because we experience it for ourselves. And uh, we know it because many of you are walking with or are currently walking with friends or family members through unbearable pain and sorrow right now or have been throughout this past months or year. But because our faith in God but because we have faith in God, we're no longer, as it says in Ephesians, people who are without hope and without God in the world, because now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And um, as I was <clears throat> thinking about just looking at last week's message and kind of transitioning into this week, I was just... Um, kind of thinking through everyone, you know, in our, in our little small congregation here and honestly just was kind of astounded at how many circumstances have been happening uh, that have had a direct impact on the lives of those in our congregation just over this past year and some still happening right now. And just with the thing with the Carter family just coming up this week, um, there's been deaths of family members um, there's been cancers, there's been other illnesses or medical conditions, and then there's other things that, that I won't even speak of um, that I'm aware of that th these things seem out of control, um, many tragic situations that some just seem unresolvable, and yet even so, as, as these things have been happening, it's almost like there's a, a parallel two train tracks going down the road, and here's these circumstances of what's going on in our church, and then here's um, what's going on with God. What is, we're getting to know God through the book of Genesis along the parallel path. And what we're learning and what we're seeing is we're seeing a God who we've seen over and over again is sovereign. It's like every week the, the big idea is almost the same, just a different twist. It's that God is sovereign, and he does not let sorrow and sin derail his promises and purposes, but we even see him redeeming things and restoring things, and he takes the sins and sorrows in the lives of his people, and even though 
you know, when we are going through the book of Genesis, we're seeing things that sometimes happen over the course of many years, sometimes hundreds of years, right? But what we see is we see God weaving this, these things into a tapestry of fulfilling the promises he has made. Um, he, he, will, he will never fail to do that. Um, and sometimes we don't have that perspective. When we're walking in this life, we might only have 70 or 80 years, you know, and, um, but, but, but we know it's true. So this same God is, is, is no less doing the same thing today in our lives. Um, up to now, we have seen characters in this unfolding story through their trials and tribulations refer to him as, these are some of the names that we've seen through up to now, Elohim, the creator, Yahweh, he is, El Elyon, God Most High, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Roy, the God who sees me when Hagar was in distress, El Olam, eternal God, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who will provide, or another way to say that is the Lord who will see to it. And um, see, these are people who are going through um, unbearable circumstances, and, and they came to know God in these ways through these circumstances. So like I said, we cannot forget that the perspective or lens that we often see things from in reading these biblical stories is from many, many years. We kind of see them in hindsight. Um, and we, not, might, we might not be able to wrap our heads around why something is happening in the course of a year or three years or 10 years um, in this life, but someday we might. Or perhaps in our lifespan, um, we might not. As, as you think about the people of Israel that were uh, in Egypt for 400 years, you know that many generations lived and died, but they had a promise that they would be given a promised land. But some of those people were slaves for that whole time. They lived and died, and they just had to trust in God's promise. They never saw it. Their whole life was, was slavery. Um, but that does not negate the faithfulness of God to his people. We know the, the end of that story. He did give them a land. So now we're in chapter 36 today, and if you have ever done a read through the Bible program, this is probably a day that you were like, yes, I get to go through two chapters today because I'm just gonna skip this one. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, God put this chapter in here for a reason. So we want to try to answer the question, why is this here? Well, I don't think God made a mistake in putting this chapter here, especially for the audiences of people. Moses, audience of people Moses was recording this to at the time, which was the people of Israel who had just come out of Egypt. They've been wandering about in the desert for 40 plus years, and they're on the doorstep of going into the promised land. So we're going to see in chapter 36 the descendants of Esau who appear to be blessed, at least in material blessings. And three things we notice right off is, if you remember when I was reading, Esau's possessions were, used the word, too great for him to dwell together with Jacob's family. Kind of like has the same tone of what happened with Abraham and, uh, and his nephew Lot. And so Esau moved on to a different land. And then number two, from his offspring came chiefs. You know, um, these are movers and shakers. These are leaders that started to 
pop up from his offspring, leaders of clans. And then from his offspring came kings. Um, so you would think that, wow, his, his line's doing pretty good. Um, so what was going on with the Israelites at this time, you know, as a comparison and contrast? Well, they were still sojourners, wandering about. They had no kings. They had no lands to govern. So what I want to us to see this afternoon, and I'm going to try to point out, is this contrast between the people who are pursuing the world and between people that are pursuing the promises of God. So it starts like this in verse 1. And it says, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. And that phrase, these are the generations of, is a phrase that we've seen before uh, in Genesis. It's kind of a recurring phrase. And when that phrase comes up, it's, it's not just a genealogy. It's, it's really a historical record because we know that um, God, you know, in his word here is using this book of Genesis and, and even other, uh, the Old Testament, really, it's a, it's a historical textbook. And um, so it's a historical record of Esau's descendants um, and the Jewish uh, people, the Jewish faith uh, saw it as such. Um, so chapter 36 is essentially a summary of Esau's line of descendants. And if you look ahead to chapter 37, um, it's going to go on to talk about Jacob's descendants. In verse 2, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. Um, so we'll get into that more in, in the weeks to come. But 37 is going to start talking about the continuing saga of Jacob and his sons. Um, in particular, it's going to focus a lot on Joseph. Um, through whom God will preserve the people, his people. Um, and uh, mainly because through Joseph, his, uh, God was going to fulfill his promise to rescue the human race. So I think we can point out three characteristics arising out of Esau and his descendants in this passage, or at least three that I wanted to come up with today. And they seem to line up fairly close with 1 John 2.16 an admonition to the people of God to not live lives characterized by worldliness, which says this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the first characteristic aligns with the desires of the flesh. Esau saw the women he wanted, and so he took them to be his wives despite that he was intermarrying with pagan women, which was not something that God was for, something that God was against. It was something that his parents were, um, he was at odds with his parents' um, desires. Um, his his uh, grandfather, Abraham, went to great lengths to make sure that his son Isaac uh, did not intermarry with the Canaanite people. <clears throat> and yet Esau has no regard for spiritual blessings and spiritual things and he he just uh, does what he wants to do and uh, he intermarries with the pagan people the second characteristic aligns with the desires of the eyes and I kind of categorize this as his, his lust for wealth in both livestock and land as you look at Esau and of course Jacob was also a wealthy man, but not really to the extent that we see with Esau, at least here. We see this great wealth that led to this distancing of himself from the people of God. He moved away from the people of God, sort of like I said that Lot did. 
And then three, the third characteristic aligns with the pride of life, and I use the word power. So we see the power of numbers here and his descendants and the power of ruling. So as the Edomite clan grew, it went beyond descendants to these important people, these chiefs and these leaders that, that, that rose up. And then finally, we start to see the development of kings one after the other, and they build cities and they reign. Um, and yet it's power that ends in the grave. You see this phrase over and over again that um, king after king reigns and then dies, and then another king reigns and then dies, and then another king reigns and then dies. So um, the key verse, though, here is in verse 31, and I'm going to read it. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And so I feel like Scripture itself is setting up this comparison and this contrast between the two tribes of Esau and Jacob. So as a quick side note, um, you'll see, you know, verses 20 through 30 in here kind of sticks in this little um, historical record of the sons of Sarah the Horite. Um, well, uh, I don't know how long they lasted, but um, if you, once we get to, well, we're not going to get to Deuteronomy, but if you read through Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 2, um, it's not long before Esau, who um, were people of the sword, as it says, um, disposed of the Horites. And uh, it says in Deuteronomy 2.12 that they dispossessed and destroyed the Horites into possession of their land. So... Um, so Esau moved over there to Seir, and then uh, quickly they, they ended up taking over the land. So I want to make three applications from these characteristics that we would associate with Esau's life, <clears throat> characterized by worldliness. Number one, uh, that had to do with Esau intermarrying with the Canaanite women, is this. A believer that is a follower of Christ Choosing to marry an unbeliever is one of the fastest ways to wipe out faith and salvation from your family heritage. So um, this may not have an immediate application to a whole bunch of people here today, but it does to some, and it will for some in the future um, that are parents of children. The question to ask yourself is this, what do you most value in a potential spouse? And obviously we all value something, right, when we're, when we're thinking about a spouse. And um, Esau valued something, um, ultimately. But Proverbs 31 says, a woman that fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, do they love God? I'm certain of this. That is not what Esau was valuing when making his marriage decisions. He was not thinking, do these Canaanite women love God? Um, so how can we end up ruining our lives? Well, by getting ourselves into a situation where love for your God and love for your spouse pull you in opposite directions. And, and what I've seen happen many times over and over again is, is, is getting into a situation where you, someone gives their heart to someone who, a believer gives their heart to someone who's not a believer, and what's hard at that point is it's a believer who does love God, but once they start giving their heart to an, un, an unbeliever, it's very hard to rein that in and bring it back and, and, 
And, and then they're in this competition where, like, it's a, like I said right here, that um, it's in opposite directions. It's pulling you in opposite directions where your love for God and your love for spouse is pulling you in opposite directions. So think about it this way. Even in decisions that are somewhat driven by our natural desires, I mean, we have a natural desire to be married. Um, we still need to subject them to our great purpose as followers of, of Christ. Because... Um, I love God and I'm trusting God. When my life is over, it won't be so much about who I married, but about whether God was glorified through my life. And it's a lot easier when I find a wife or husband who will join me in that pursuit because I don't want to be forced into making a choice between God and my spouse. Number two, another application that relates to the second point that I was making um, about wealth Living to acquire wealth and possessions steals your heart and moves you away from the people and purpose of God. So here's what I didn't say. I didn't say, if you are wealthy, it will happen. I'm saying, if you are living to acquire wealth. I know, I know people who I would consider wealthy that are extremely generous, generous people. Um, Generous, more generous than, than most, and they are using their assets for the glory of God. Um, but the warning is in 1 Timothy 6, and it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So the reality is when most people read that verse or hear it from a pulpit or something, they they just tend to think, hey, that's not talking about me. I, I, don't, I don't have much. I'm not rich. But we need to be careful there because this is, this is talking about a heart attitude. It's, it's, not, it's not talking about net worth. Um, I could be what one would consider poor and be more covetous than one who would, consi you, would, one you would consider rich. Um, so we all really need to look inward at our hearts and evaluate where we are with respect to covetousness versus contentment. Um, scripture equates covetousness with idolatry. And the standard for contentment is found in 1 Timothy 6, 8, which says, but if we have, found, if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So how do you rate your contentment compared to this standard? That's it's a it's a tough it's a tough question, um, but it's just it's just about the heart. Um, and then this last one really is another uh, point that really comes down to the heart attitude. Don't, and this is the third application: Don't seek great things for yourself in this world, where every bit of influence and power you ever gain is gonna vanish the moment you breathe your last, which none of us knows when that's gonna be. So again, this has to do with a hard attitude. There's a verse in Jeremiah where God was speaking to Baruch and he said, seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And God goes on to explain that what was built will be broken down and what was planted would be plucked up. And God is saying, don't seek those things that will not have eternal value. God, God wasn't saying, he was just saying, don't seek great things for yourself. He didn't, he didn't say, don't seek great things for me. 
seek great things that have eternal value. Um, don't be seeking great things that, that don't have eternal value. Um, you know, we live in a culture that's big on goals, that's big on getting her done. Um, it's not the same culture everywhere, but that culture naturally lends itself to being very self-driven. Um, uh, I, I was, I ran across some Facebook thing this week of some guy and he gets up at 4.50 every morning, very driven, very goal-oriented. I mean, and, you know, when you're not that way, you, I tend, you know, I was like, man, I wish I could be like that guy. I mean, very, very disciplined, mental discipline, physical discipline. And, uh, but he's got very many self-fulfilling type goals, self-fulfillment type goals for himself. But sometimes that can tend towards living life without acknowledging God. I'm not saying that that's the case with this individual, but um, that's what it could tend towards. You're having regard for, not having regard for what God wants. It's just that we, we can't leave God out of the equation. Um, or we might find ourselves in this perpetual dissatisfaction with God's gifts to us because there's always something more that we want or always something bigger that we want to build or some new position that we want to hold. Um, so that's, that, that's why I said, again, it comes down to the heart. What is the heart attitude in, in those things? We need, to, we need to have the attitude that we want to serve God where we are now. Um, be all in where we are now, not thinking this dream of what it's going to be like then. When we get to that point, then we're going to serve God. What if God never gave you that dream job? What if God never let you develop that career? What if God never moved you into that larger home? What if all those human type worldly goals never came to pass? Would you be okay serving God right where you are right now? And the answer really needs to be yes, because only God knows the future. We need to live today for God's glory and not waste a day in the dissatisfied longing for what could be in the future, because there might not be a tomorrow. Um, and like I said, don't, don't, we need to not be building dreams in our mind according to our own plans, but kind of live like Abraham did, who, who was a sojourner, who, who God said, get up and move, and he didn't, he just started moving, he just started going. He let God be the designer of his life. He let God move him where he needed to go. Um, not knowing, he just trusted God 100%, not knowing where he was going. So as the Edomite history unfolds, this is the line of Esau, they became staunch enemies of Israel. You know, if, you, if you're familiar with, with their story. 500 years after Esau and Jacob parted ways, the Edomites refused to allow the Israelites to pass through on their way to the promised land. 400 years after that, King David fights them and defeats them. 400 years after that, when the Jews were deported to Babylon and some Israelite fugitives tried to escape, the Edomites cut off their escape routes. Um, and finally, roughly 600 years later, the villain, Herod the Great, who exterminated the babies of Bethlehem to try to exterminate the Messiah, was himself an Edomite. So Esau's line had greatness from the world's perspective, but they lost what was truly valuable. 
for all of his successes, his worldly heart perpetuated this legacy of hostility to God and God's people, all because, as we talked about weeks ago, at the very beginning, he saw little value in the spiritual blessings and lived for the here and now. And that's the legacy of Esau. So what about Jacob? What about Jacob's line? So what's happening with the chosen people of God during this time? What's happening with them? These are the people through whom God said the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. And these are the people who will lead to the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we're going to see that the contrast is quite stark. As we read about all these chiefs and kings and lands and cities and reigning from Esau's descendants, then we come to verse 1 in Genesis 37 and it says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So you're talking about uh, people whose homes were temporary. Um, They're living like nomads. It even says in Hebrews, they lived in tents living in the land of promise. So one thing Jacob had going for him is he wasn't a poor man. Um, There's no question he's a wealthy man. We read how God blessed him despite um, Laban's underhanded uh, dealings with him. But compared to Esau's worldly success, one might view Jacob and his descendants as failures. Really, up to the time that Moses is compiling and recording this portion of history, which is some 400 years later, they have no settled claim to the land of promise, and they are still living in tents. They have no kings, and they have no cities. So as soon as this goes on, you'll see as we go through the next 13 chapters, the people of God will be forced to move from the part of Canaan they do live in and end up in Egypt for over 400 years, ending up as slaves. And there they will be suffering, yearning for freedom, and crying out to God. So you might think, while the people of God might not have as much worldly success as Esau's descendants, but at least they have the most important thing going for them, right? We're going to find great godliness in Jacob's history, right? Well, we wish, but not exactly. Um, Since we've looked ahead because we've decided who's going to do different chapters, all I can say is yikes. (laughs) (laughs) about uh, Jacob's future. As we read on in Genesis, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find favoritism. Of course, that's been going on since the beginning in this family. We're going to find jealousy that springs from that, jealousy that blows up into full hatred and conspiracy to murder, brothers wanting to murder their brother Joseph. It leads to the abuse of selling him into slavery. We see deceit. We see wickedness. We see sexual immorality. The history of Joseph gives at least one godly example. Um, Thankfully, in all of this, we also see God's special care of Joseph. If it wasn't for God, then there'd be no preserving of his people. So God moves Joseph from a prison to a throne and then moves his family, the Israelites, to Egypt under his protection. So here we have, while Esau and the Edomites prosper and reign, The people of God are waiting in faith for God to make good on his promises. 
One writer noted this, that, quote, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. The unrighteous prosper in worldly power and wealth, while the righteous seem at times to lag behind such prosperity. <clears throat> in fact, when we get to the very end of the history in Genesis, um, I'm going to read this from Genesis 50. This is the last two, the last two verses in, in Genesis 50. And this is Joseph talking. <clears throat> and it says this. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. No, let me start in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So when you think about all the time that passed between Joseph saying those words and the promise coming to fruition, was generation after generation suffering through slavery, having to maintain hope in that promise. And we think we're being patient when we wait for a season of time in our lives, when we wait one year for something, when we wait two years for something. Um, just, just to give perspective. So the chronicle of Jacob and his descendants is one of sin, it's one of relentless grace on God's part and preservation on God's part and waiting for the fulfillment of the promises. So just as Joseph would say to his brothers, God will visit you, I want to talk about the Hebrew word for a minute. The Hebrew word for that, God will visit you, combines two thoughts. It first gives the thought that God is fully aware of what is going on in the lives of his people. It has this sense of he closely inspects what's going on. He is the ultimate good shepherd. And when you think of that, when you think of that, you just think like who better than Joseph to come to know this about God, to use those words to, I mean, whenever he was using those words to the people he was saying that to, you know, it, it, we just read it as God will visit you. But in Hebrew, to the people he was saying it to, it meant that God really knows what's going on and he will take action on your behalf. And who, like I said, who better to know that than Joseph, who, who knew that God saw his situation and took action on his behalf. Um, so not only is God fully aware of the details of our lives and that we're going, what we're going through, but he also will take action. That's what the term visit carries in the meaning of the term. So basically the people of God we're holding on to this rope, basically, and that's the secret to their rescue. They're, they're holding on to this hope um, based on Joseph giving them these words. And really, is this not a truth that gives us great comfort and contentment? The truth is that their survival and the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises in their lives was independent of worldly success. I'm going to say that again because 
You know, here they were slaves for 400 years. Their survival and the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises in their lives was independent of worldly success. But by worldly standards, they were complete failures. They were slaves and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Um, but God fulfilled his promises and it had nothing to do with their success according to the world. And that applies to us as well. God could have recorded lots of things, but this is what he recorded that would have application to them in their time and us in our time. You know, we live in a world where it's common for the ungodly to prosper while the children of God wait for his coming again. We're foreigners, like they were sojourners, not chiefs and kings according to the world, and it may seem to us that we are missing out. Um, sometimes, you know, when times are hard, we might find ourselves asking things like, are we fools to keep on waiting for God to fulfill his promises? Are we naive to pass up worldly success that comes from putting down roots here and building empires here and now? Are we throwing our lives away? Well, if we believe the Bible to be God's word, then we believe that God answers that question over and over again as no. And we really have to decide, and this really is what saving faith is about, we have to decide whether we will root our lives in what we cannot see and what has not happened yet. And we do so because we count God reliable. We count him as faithful. So just as we looked at three applications from the characteristics from Esau's heritage, I want to conclude with three applications from Jacob's heritage. One, waiting as foreigners in this world is not failure in this life. It is using this life towards what will last forever. Um, I'm going to share 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, which says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What's the opposite of faith and patience? My way and my time. You know, it's here and now, uh, doing it my way. What we know from these biblical stories is that those who waited in faith did not wait in vain. Again, for, you know, because we have this hindsight you know, we, we see these stories from hindsight. We, we see that they didn't wait in vain. But almost always the promised spiritual blessing we see demands patience and faith and emphasizes that waiting while others prosper is a test of faithfulness and perseverance. And, and that's, I mean, if someone were to look at what's going on in our lives 200 years from now, they could probably write the same story. Um, but we just but we might not see it in our lifetime. Number two, the people of God can commit the most horrible of sins. That is another application from Jacob's heritage that applies to us as well. The people of God can commit the most horrible of sins. The fact is, great sinners need a great savior who saves the undeserving by his grace, and we are those undeserving people. Really, 
You look at Esau and you look at Jacob and some might conclude that Esau was the better guy. Um, so what does that tell us? That tells us that the Bible is about God, not about us. And as we've said before through, through many of these passages, right, the Bible is brutally honest with us about the sinfulness of God's people. We're going to see it as we continue on here. Um, so that we never forget that it's because of God's grace that we have such a glorious future. We're not better than the people of this world, just rescued by the atoning blood of Jesus who bore the wrath we deserved. And that changes everything. Um, our attitude needs to be that we are people who have been redeemed by God, not people who are better. And number three, God preserves his people by taking them through the trials and tribulations, not by taking them around them. <clears throat> the way up is usually reached by going down. Just as we're going to see, we're going to get a heavy dose of this in the life of Joseph, God turns tragedy into amazing blessing. Over the course of 20 years or more, what were the people of God learning to whom Moses was writing this story to? That God would be faithful to give the promised blessings to Jacob's descendants, but only after a period of long refining and proving of the faith. A long, a long period. I mean, hundreds of years period. Even Jesus teaches us that the cross comes before the crown that all who follow him must deny themselves and take up their cross to do so. He died to give us life. He's risen again because death cannot hold him. And he tells us that those who would reign with him must suffer with him first. So there you have the contrast between Esau's descendants and Jacob's descendants. On the one hand, you have worldly success. And on the other hand, you have persevering faith. May we be people of faith that reject the temptation to bank on the here and now, but rather to bank on what will last forever. And lest we lose heart in um, looking at the world around us and thinking that we're somehow falling behind, I wanted to share this verse from 1 Peter 2.9 to close, um, because this is who we are as a follower of Christ, because this sounds really good, right? It says 1 Peter 2.9. So read this verse to yourself if you're discouraged. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for those encouraging words, Lord, that we, I mean, we have value. You, you value us, God, to have chosen us, to have put royal robes on us, God, to uh, bring us into the priesthood, Lord, um, to be a nation, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, Lord. 
I mean, we're, we're not paupers. We're king's children. We're, we're not, we're not getting behind. We're not in any way unsuccessful. Lord, um, we have, we have everything at our fingertips, Lord. I think of how the, when Satan tempted you and he said, like, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And you, maybe you had the thought, they're all mine already. They're all mine anyway. I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them anyway. And uh, if we just have that mindset, Lord, that um, uh, we have everything at our disposal, God, that you have um, because you brought us into your family, Lord, we, that our inheritance is, is, is sure. And um, Lord, we just, we thank you for that, God. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would um, sustain us, Lord, in this life, sustain us um, through the pain, sorrow, and sufferings that are guaranteed to come our way, Lord. Um, and may we glorify you through our lives, Lord, as, as these things come our way, as we pray that you give us grace and, and we would respond to your grace, Lord, as you say, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would not flush with your grace. We know that it's available. We know that it's there. You give your grace is sufficient. I pray that uh, we would be people that would not fall short of your grace as we um, go through the difficulties in this life. I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.